I will be reading Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 through 28, out of the New King James Version. So the boys grew, and Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field. But Jacob was a mild man, dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. You may be seated. Good evening. Ah, user error. Sorry about that. I want to begin with a with a thank you. I I really mean it from the bottom of my heart. From uh, my family and I, we are really uh, impressed with this congregation. Uh, so we've been attending here and visiting here since the end of November when we moved to this area, and we really haven't been any place else. And we have just been uh, overwhelmed with with uh, fellowship and the love that you have for God and for each other and for the few people that came and helped us move into our home. That's real love right there. And uh, we have just been very appreciative of the prayers for my mother over the last couple weeks. Uh, she is doing pretty well and hopefully will be moved to a rehab and therapy facility sometime early this week. But thank you so much uh, for welcoming us into this church family and for encouraging us and for giving me this opportunity to speak tonight. I'm excited to speak. I don't like speaking after people like Melvin. Um, he just did such a great job this morning, got us all fired up. So it's just all downhill from there. So don't expect anything tonight that's going to compare to that. But I am excited about tonight's lesson. If I was to show you this picture and ask you uh, maybe some of the first few things that were to come to your mind about the legacy of Abraham Lincoln, I don't know what it would be. I don't know what the first one or two or three things that would pop into your head might be. I'll tell you what it probably wouldn't be. It probably wouldn't be his dog. But Abraham Lincoln did have a beloved dog before he became president. And this dog's name, which was chosen by Abraham Lincoln from a Latin word meaning to trust, to believe, to confide in, has become a name that's almost synonymous with a dog itself. And that name is, anybody know? Fido. Did you know that Fido originated with Abraham Lincoln's dog? And since then, it's become a very popular name. Probably not the first thing you thought of when I put Abraham Lincoln's picture on the board, but it's certainly part of his legacy. If I put Ronald Reagan's picture on the board and say, what do you think about when you see Ronald Reagan, I don't know what would come to your mind, but probably not jelly beans. Ronald Reagan, as it turns out, was a lover of jelly beans. He tried to quit smoking his pipe several years before he became president, and he replaced that with jelly beans, which I think is probably just as harmful. But anyway, he, he loved jelly beans to the point that he ordered three and a half tons of red, white, and blue jelly beans for his 1980 inauguration party, and that they were, they say they were all over the White House. They were just a staple. Everywhere you went during his term, you could grab a handful of jelly beans, but I didn't know that. I was alive for that particular presidency. I didn't know that about Ronald Reagan, but that's part of his legacy. What about Franklin Delano Roosevelt? I was not alive for that one. But when you think about his 
legacy. I don't know what comes to your mind, but probably not the fact that he loved mystery stories and that Franklin Delano Roosevelt even helped write a mystery story while he was in office. And it was even turned into a movie. Did you know that? That this president is the only president who has a film writing credit while he was still in office. That's pretty amazing. I had no idea that that was part of his legacy. Thomas Jefferson is a name I've heard since I was a kid. I know a lot about Thomas Jefferson, but I did not know he was into paleontology. Did you know that one time he spread 300 woolly mammoth bones across several rooms of the White House just to study them? I had no idea. What I typically think of when I think of these men is that they were presidents of the United States, right? There are some things associated with the presidency of the United States that might come to mind when I see these men, but their primary legacy seems to be one or two or three things in the minds of most people, right? But what is a legacy? Before we take a look at a legacy tonight, we might not need to know what the word means. According to the dictionary, legacy can mean several things. It can mean a gift of property, special, especially personal property. Maybe somebody in your family leaves you a legacy. They leave you a, a plot of land or they leave you something in their will. That can be a definition of legacy. It can be the applicant to or the student at a school that was attended by his or her parent. If one of our college students who goes to Faulkner here has a mom or a dad who also went to Faulkner, then they are a legacy at that school. But it can also mean, and for our purposes tonight, this is what it's going to mean. It means anything handed down from the past, as from an ancestor or predecessor. That first word is pretty important, isn't it? As we just saw from, from the lives of four very famous people, their legacy can include things that we might not be aware of. Maybe small things in, in the grand scheme of things, but anything that is passed down from one person to another can be considered part of their legacy. Here are some of the synonyms of the word legacy, and, and maybe this helps us get started with our study. Consequence, outcome, effect, repercussion, aftermath, footprint, byproduct, result, and fruit. In other words, anything that you say Anything that you do, anything that you don't say or don't do can, can become, whether you like it or not, can become part of your legacy. And the question naturally becomes, since it's, it's obvious based on this definition that I might have very little to do with what my legacy ends up being, what are people going to remember about me? If everything that I say and don't say and everything that I do and don't do could become part of that legacy, it's a great responsibility and it leaves this question sort of hanging. What are people going to remember about me? This evening our lesson is entitled, A Look at Jacob's Legacy. And I think we would all agree that Jacob certainly left us a lot to think about, didn't he? Did you know that the, the name Jacob is found over 360 times? In the Bible, there's only four or five people in, in, in the entirety of Scripture who are mentioned more than Jacob. Did you know that the narrative of Jacob's life from his birth to his death with several things in there about his family, but that narrative takes up 25 chapters in the book of Genesis. 25 
chapters. That's why we're calling this lesson a look at Jacob's legacy because you could probably preach on Jacob for a year and scratch the surface of everything that the Bible records about him. There's so many things we could look at this evening from the life of Jacob. So many pictures and images and scenes that are probably running through your mind right now about this great patriarch. We're going to mention several of them as we move through an overview of his life. But as we take a look at this legacy tonight, I want to pause at certain points and I want us to consider our own families. I understand this evening that there are some in this audience who family is the furthest thing from their mind. They're young. They're not necessarily thinking about starting their own family. They're just in one right now. Well, I want to talk to those young people tonight. I think the Bible wants to talk to those young people. There are also those who are getting ready to start their own family. Some of them stood up this morning, this very morning, to talk about getting, getting ready to start their own family. It's exciting, isn't it? When you're getting ready to start your own family, and then you actually get married, and then you have some kids, and then those kids grow up, and then you have some grandkids, and there's all kinds of stages of family in this audience tonight. I think this story speaks to all of them, and I hope that it will to you in some way tonight. I want to break up this lesson into two main sections tonight, if you're taking notes. Jacob's life and Jacob's legacy. Jacob's life and Jacob's legacy. Let's begin with Jacob's life this evening. And we're going to break this up, and I think the Bible does it for us, into three fairly neat sections or phases of life. And I think these are going to help us understand Jacob's legacy in every stage of our own lives. The stage that we want to start with, the phase one, if you will, is called foundation. And this is the beginning of Jacob's life. This is the period of his life where he spent at home. From Genesis chapter 25 all the way up to the beginning of Genesis chapter 28, Jacob is with his mother and his father and his brother at home. And I want to talk about a few of, of the things that happened during this very, very important phase of life that some of you in this audience are still in. Some of you are still in this phase of life where you're at home with your mother, your father, whoever your parents or grandparents might be, whoever you might live with. This is that first phase of life. Some of the most famous things about Jacob that we know that we would think of immediately come from this phase of his life, his birth. The, the stealing of the, the birthright from his brother Esau. Uh, the stealing of the blessing that his own mother helped him with. Some of the most famous things occur while he is at home. But let me focus on a couple of things that maybe we don't think about as much during this period of Jacob's life. Jacob grew up in what we now refer to as a nuclear family. That doesn't necessarily mean it's about to blow up, although at any point I guess it could. But what we mean when we say nuclear family is we mean one father and one mother. We mean that, that someone is growing up in a home with both parents. And not everyone's blessed to have that, but those who are blessed to have that, you would think that would be an advantage, wouldn't you? That's God's plan. So we've got one father, Isaac, we've got one mother, Rebecca, we've got a brother, Esau. We don't have any second or third wives in this family. We don't even have any handmaidens or concubines, which was the case with Abraham, and it's going to be the case with Esau, and it's going to be the case with Jacob. But this is an exception. This family that Isaac and Rebecca have, it's a nuclear family, and it should be superior, shouldn't it? It should offer some advantages 
to the families that have two, three, four wives in them, right? Well, it should be. If this family had behaved itself the way that maybe it should have behaved itself, maybe that would have been the case. But as we know about Isaac, when we know very little about him, he seems to have been a fairly passive man. And Rebecca seems to have taken advantage of this fact, taking over some of the things that were not necessarily her place to take over. You remember when Jacob was born. You remember that some things happened uh, as he was being born, that he took hold of his brother's heel. As he came out of the womb, Esau came out first and Jacob took hold of his heel and they named him Jacob, which means taking hold of the heel or supplanter or layer of snares. It's not exactly the most flattering name you can get, right? I mean, if you were born and your, your parents named you Jerk, I mean, would that be great? Would you, would you enjoy that? Rascal? That's, a, that's what you name a dog. You don't, you don't name a child based on, you know, well, look at that negative thing that he did when he was being born. Well, that's kind of a curse, and it ended up being pretty prophetic. This is kind of how Jacob's life ended up going. He was a supplanter. He took people by the heel, and he took advantage of them in a lot of different cases. As we find out from the Scriptures, Genesis chapter 25, verse 27, he was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. He was kind of a homebody and a, a mild-mannered person. He also learned and kind of perfected the art of favoritism and manipulation. Where did he learn all of that and perfect all of that? At home. Every bit of it he learned and perfected at home to show favoritism, to manipulate people to get what you want. I'm not making that up. Because his parents, as we just read, they had favorites. And they acted on those choices. It's one thing as a parent to think, well, I really like one of these kids more than the other. I don't know that I've ever thought that. We've got four little kids. I don't know that I, there's been moments. I don't really like you very much. But most of the time, I, I like them and love them all the same. And I don't know that I've ever had a favorite. But if I did, at least I know not to act on it. Don't you? Don't act on it. That's dangerous. That's, that'd be awful for those children. But these two parents didn't quite understand that. Isaac loved Esau, the Bible said. Isaac loved Esau because, because of his game. I'm not exactly sure what's going on here, but let me speculate just a little bit. Esau was everything that Isaac was not. He was everything that Isaac was not. And maybe, maybe, Isaac is living through the impulsive and aggressive and devil-may-care lifestyle of Esau. Maybe that's what's happening. And maybe that's the same reason why some fathers get so excited about the athletic prowess of their son or daughter. I didn't get to do that. And they're really good at it, so maybe if I throw myself into that, I can have some of those experiences. Rebecca loved Jacob. Maybe because he was at home all the time, or maybe because he was passive and, and controllable and manipulative. Anyway, they shared some of the same traits. Maybe he was more of a friend to his mother than a son. Sometimes that happens as well, doesn't it? This companionship between Rebekah and Jacob would have only been magnified after Esau's decision to marry foreign women when he was 40 years of age, Genesis chapter 26. Verses 34 and 35, can you imagine? After that happened, the rift that may have taken place between Esau and Rebekah, and maybe even between Esau and, and both of his parents. And maybe that drove Rebekah and Jacob even closer together. It brings up an interesting point, a question that I had as I was studying this lesson. 
How old was Jacob when he left home? If I were to ask for a show of hands, and I'm not, if I was to ask how many of you know how old Jacob was when he left home? I don't say how many of you think that you know. How many of you think you have an idea? I'm not asking that. How many of you know how old he was when he left home? I did not. I had had this fuzzy idea in my head about how old he was when he left home, and I turned out to be really wrong about it. I think this is very interesting and important to the foundational phase of his life. So could I take you through some of the numbers that help us understand how old he was when he left home? I think you'll find this interesting. The Bible teaches us, I know this is a little hard to read, Joseph was 30 years old when he was appointed by Pharaoh to rule over Egypt. That's Genesis 41-46. You remember that Joseph was the son born to Jacob through his favorite wife, Rachel. Joseph was his favorite son, and he was born to Jacob later in life. Joseph was 30 years old when he was appointed by Pharaoh. There had been seven years of plenty and two years of famine when Joseph's family moved to Egypt. Genesis chapter 45, verse 11, give or take a little bit of time. There had been seven years of plenty and two years of famine when Joseph warned them about, you need to move here. You need to come here so I can take care of you. This would make Joseph, if we're doing the math right, about 39 years old at the time that his family came to Egypt. You with me so far? That'd make him about 39, 40 years old when his family came. We know how old Jacob was when he got there. He was 130 years old when he got to Egypt, Genesis 47 Verse 9, that means that if we subtract Joseph's age from Jacob's age, that Jacob would have been about 91 years old when Joseph was born. About 91 years old when Joseph was born. Now, we also know shortly after Joseph was born began the last six years of Jacob's service with Laban. We know how long he's been there up to that point, 14 years. So if we subtract 14 years from 91 we see that Jacob would have been 77 years old when he left home, when he saw the vision of the ladder, when he stole the blessing, when he moved to Paddan Aram to begin his new life. 77 years old. Did you know that? Did you know that Jacob only lives to be 147 years old? He spent half his life at home. Half of it. 147 years old, he spent 77 years at home. Now, why am I mentioning all of this? Well, we already know Esau was 40 years old when he married these Hittite women, Genesis 26, 34. Why didn't Jacob get married? Do you realize that that's a 37-year gap between the time that Esau got married and the time Jacob left home to find a wife of his own? This is not what happened with Isaac. His father Abraham went and got a wife for him when he was 40 years old. He's not doing that for Jacob. 37 years since Esau caused a rift and made the life of his parents bitter. 37 years Jacob stayed at home. You think that made any difference? You think that created an environment that it caused some some personality development in this man. Let's talk a little bit about his parents a little bit more. Isaac and Rebecca, they felt pretty strongly about some quote-unquote religious things. Genesis chapter 27, verse 46, they felt very, very strongly about Esau marrying the wrong kind of women. 
That was just not supposed to happen. They were, they were upset about it. It made their lives bitter. They were not okay with that. But they're perfectly fine lying and deceiving, aren't they? I love what some of the things Melvin said this morning, that it's not enough as a family, is it, to be religious? It's not enough to care deeply about whether a church is, is teaching uh, false doctrine if you go home and you don't care whether or not you're honest with people. Or whether or not you're loving and kind to each other. None of those things are going to matter, are they? You've got a little bit of that going on in this family for 77 years. I would suggest to you that you have a case of nature and nurture working together in the life of Jacob. It seemed to be his nature to be sort of a manipulative person. To, to have this concept of favoritism. That seemed to be his nature from the get-go. And they really nurtured that in this home. So you've got all of these things working together that are causing Jacob to have a 77-year foundation that might not serve him very well. Jacob may have thought to himself, as a lot of young people do, when I get out of the house, I'm not going to be like this. When I get out of my house and, and I get to start my own family, Things are going to be different. Did you ever think that as a young person? Well, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to treat my kids this way. I'm not going to treat my spouse this way. Uh, this is, things are going to be very, very different in my house when I get out. Let's think about some application for just a moment as we think about this phase of Jacob's life. Young people, does our upbringing have any impact on us? That's a silly question, isn't it? Does our upbringing have any impact on us? Does, does the behavior and the words and the, the demeanor of our parents and grandparents and siblings have any effect on us? If I were to ask the young people, what are you learning right now at home? Parents, would you be ready for that answer? What are you learning at home right now, young people? It matters, doesn't it? It's going to have an impact on us. Parents, isn't it easier? I had everything figured out, by the way, before I became a parent. But as parents, isn't it easier to spot the mistakes of other people than to recognize our own blind spots and failures? Isn't that much easier to do? It's much easier for me to look at the story of Jacob and say, hey, look what he did right there, that was a dumb idea. Easier to do that than it is to spot my own. I don't want to make too much of this, but before we move on, I want to say this. This is pretty much every family that's ever lived that this applies to, but we need to be very careful. Young people and parents during this stage of life, during the foundational years, our children are watching. They are listening. They are learning. They are becoming who they are going to be while they're with us. And I know that as I say that, there are parents whose hearts are breaking to remember that that's true. They remember that. It's too late. The children are out of the house. They would be the first to tell you, yes, that's true. Don't miss that. Don't take that for granted. Our children are watching. Our tendencies as parents, our behaviors are going to contribute to shaping theirs. And Jacob is a prime example of that, isn't he? It's a prime example of the fact that his foundation was laid before he left home. 
And maybe he thought things are going to be different when I have my own family. Well, let's move into phase two and let's just see if they are. Let's talk about phase two, which is his family. Jacob is getting out of the house. Finally, at 77 years old, he's moving out. Parents, don't you hope that doesn't happen? You know, surely by 77, you know, you're getting out of here. Jacob is finally moving out by 77. I'm going to skip over a few things in his life, and I'm going to come back to them later on in the lesson. But let's kind of take a, a tour through what happens next. When he gets to uh, Paddan Aram, he has love at first sight. Isn't that beautiful? You ever have love at first sight? Isn't that amazing? I remember the first time I saw Brooke. I thought the angels were singing. They may have been, just for me. She walked into that church building. She was in the back. I was in the front, and I made a beeline, buddy. It was just about love at first sight. I was very taken with her when I saw her. Jacob is sent away to Paddan Aram so that he could take a wife from one of the daughters of his uncle Laban, chapter 28, verse 2. As soon as he gets there, he meets Rachel. And he's instantly smitten. And you might say, well, how can you tell that? Well, the Bible says he does three things that men who are smitten usually do. He lifts something heavy to impress her. He kisses her. And he cries. We don't like to admit the third thing sometimes, but... But that's what happens when you're smitten. Let me show this girl what I got. Let me show her what I can do. I'm going to show off a little bit. Then we're going to kiss a little bit. And then this is just, this is amazing. That's what the Bible says happens when Jacob meets Rachel. Chapter 29, verses 10 and 11. So he works out a deal with Laban, her father. I'll work seven years to marry Rachel. That seems like a long engagement to me. Does that seem like a long engagement to you? Simba, you going to wait seven years? He looks at her. He doesn't know. He's ready for marriage. Seven years. You know what the Bible says? It says it seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. Verse 20. Isn't that romantic? It certainly seems like a short amount of time for the reader because you know what else is said about those seven years? Nothing. We don't know anything except he worked for her and then after seven years, we get tricked. Now, Jacob doesn't deserve that, does he? We get tricked. Laban takes advantage of Jacob's smittenness, and he tricks Jacob. Instead of giving him Rachel as a wife, he gives him his oldest daughter, Leah. We're told in chapter 29, verse 17, that Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. I don't know what that means. Did Leah have a lazy eye? Was she just plain ugly? Or was she just less pretty than her sister? I don't know. Here's what I do know. On the wedding night, Laban just slips in the wrong woman and he doesn't know till morning. I've never understood that. I don't come from that culture. I don't claim to. But I was excited about my honeymoon. Don't get me wrong. But we looked at each other a couple of times before that happened. We, there, was, there was some contact. There was some conversation. There's nothing. He doesn't know to the next morning, hey, this is the wrong wife. I've been tricked. And yes, he has been tricked. And Laman says, well, we just don't do that here. I, I forgot to tell you seven years ago. Slipped my mind. But we just don't give the, the younger daughter in marriage. You've got to take this older one first. And if you want the younger one, you can work another seven years. 
sounds a little bit like Laban took advantage of the fact that Jacob had some strong emotions going on, doesn't it? Now, does that sound familiar? Didn't Jacob kind of take advantage of the fact that Esau was pretty hungry one day? Kind of slid a bowl of soup right in front of his nose and said, here it is, if you want it bad enough, you can have it. That's what Laban did to Jacob. That foundation is, those seeds are being reaped, aren't they? Seeds that were sown at home are being reaped when he gets out to start his own family. you got toddlers and trouble is what I call the next seven years. Because Jacob has a lot of children during this seven years. Most of them from Leah and the two handmaidens and concubines that have been given to his two wives. There's a lot of jealousy, a lot of insecurity, a lot of dysfunction. Some weird stuff with some mandrakes most of which stemmed from the fact that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And because the Lord saw that Leah was hated, and he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. Chapter 29, verses 30 and 31. In other words, God says, all right, Jacob, you're going to start your family and it's going to be different. Let me, let me show you how this is going to go. Because you still haven't learned that this favoritism thing, this manipulating to get your own way, that's not my way. That's not the way to start a family. And I may need to show you that. I may need to teach you this lesson in a very difficult way personally. So Jacob works 14 years, has a lot of children with four different women. And then he gets ready. I'm calling this next phase righteous revenge. He's ready to go home after 14 years. Joseph is born and Jacob wants to take his family and leave. But Laban doesn't want him to go because he's made Laban very wealthy. And so he works out a deal to get Jacob to stay. But Jacob takes advantage of this next six years of labor and he makes himself quite rich in the process. And the details of that are kind of spelled out in chapter 30, 31. And I don't know if I understand all of it, to be honest with you. But I do know this, God seems to have been involved. God seems to be the real reason that Jacob prospered and that Laban kind of lost money on this deal. And it seems to have been okay with God. Because at this point in Jacob's life, he knows that Jacob has sort of paid his dues. Laban's just taken advantage of him. And now it's time for Laban to reap a little bit. In chapter 31, Jacob leaves home for sure. God tells him to. So he takes his family. He doesn't tell Laban that he's leaving. Laban chases him. But they come to an understanding and Jacob takes his family and they begin a new chapter of life. When you get to chapter 37, I know we're skipping ahead a little bit, and he's got his family and he's doing some active parenting. We get to what we call favoritism part three. We still haven't learned anything. Even when he has his own family, he chooses a favorite child and he has no problem acting on that choice, oblivious to the effect that it's having on his entire family. So this is an outline of, of that second phase of his life where he says, I'm getting out of the house, I'm starting my own family. Well, this is what it looked like. Isn't that so much better and so much less dysfunctional than his foundation, right? Didn't he just he just nailed it, didn't he? I'm sure his parents are thinking, Whoo, look at the look at Jacob. He's just a fantastic father and husband. Look at him go. Well, it didn't quite work out that way, did it? That foundation had a lot more to do with his family than he thought it would. Let me ask a few application questions about 
this section of his life. Have some of us as parents, and I'm talking about me as well as anybody else, have some of us fallen into the same tendencies and behaviors that we saw growing up that we said we would never fall into? Has it ever happened to you? When you're growing up, you say, I'm never going to be like that. Maybe you saw it in your, your parents, or maybe you saw it in your grandparents or your siblings, and you said, it's not going to be like that when I grow up. And you look around when you grow up, and you're like, what in the world has happened? Just like my dad, I'm just like my mom, I'm just like my brother or sister, what happened? Have you discovered, parents, and I'm sure you have if you have been a parent for very long, have you discovered just how intentional you have to be to not let that happen? How proactive and intentional you have to be if you actually want to be different than the way that you were brought up? That is not easy, is it? Jacob realized that firsthand when he got out of his house and maybe he thought this is going to be different and then he learned, whew, this is hard. Still hard when you're parenting. How easy is it to miss your own mistakes simply because you're just so busy and tired? I'm calling this part of our lives, we've got four little kids, two of them still in diapers. I'm just calling this the blur. Do you know what I mean? I don't even really know what day. I think it's Sunday because I'm up here preaching. I really don't know sometimes. It is nothing but baby food and diapers and bedtime. And, you know, sometimes it just feels like a train you can't get off of. And I love it. Don't get me wrong. But it's taxing, isn't it, when you're raising your own kids? It's taxing. And all of a sudden you think to yourself, Man, why am I not being more intentional? We need to be better. We need to, we need to do something else. It's easy for a young person who thought, this should be all about me. It's easy for that young person to become a parent who still thinks that. If you haven't experienced that, you, you might someday. When you're young and you think, why aren't my parents doing this? They should be more concerned about me, about us. They should be thinking more selflessly. It's easy for that attitude to just go right with you into parenting. And it's still about you. Even if you won't admit it. Young people, I can promise you this. Because I've experienced it. If you approach your youth selfishly, as if everything should be about you, you'll probably continue that approach when you have your own family. And it'll take you years to realize that you've done it. But you'll probably continue, and one day you'll think, what in the world has happened? My kids are such and such years old, and I really haven't done anything different than what I saw being done when I was growing up. We have to do something else. Phase three. I'm going to call this phase fallout. This takes place over the 50 years that are remaining in the life of Jacob. And the case could be made, I suppose, that he's dealing with fallout for the entirety of his life. You could make the case that he's dealing with the fallout during the 20 years that he's raising his family. But let's examine some of the fallout that happens after he's been liberated from Laban's household. Okay, Let's take a look at the first thing that happens when he gets his family out from under Laban's thumb. He has a family reunion. You remember this? The very first thing that happens is he meets up with Esau. Jacob is face to face with his past. 20 years later. Oh, yeah. Forgot I did that. Face to face with his brother Esau. We know that this story has a happy ending, but he didn't. 
Jacob did not know that. The Bible says he was greatly afraid and distressed. He didn't know if he was going to make it through this family reunion, much like some of the ones you've probably attended. I don't know if this is going to work out too well. Then we have, in chapter 34, this business with Dinah. And we're moving rapidly through this. Jacob's daughter Dinah is violated, let's just say that, violated by a man named Shechem. Jacob's sons are not happy about this, as brothers shouldn't be, and they decide to get their revenge. They don't roll their yard like I would have done. They don't get revenge in that way. No, they trick an entire city. They trick an entire city, and then they go in, and they kill all the men in this city, and they plunder everybody else. And Jacob says to these boys, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. I think that's an interesting reaction, don't you? I don't hear him saying, hey boys, you probably shouldn't have murdered all those people. That wasn't right. I don't hear that. Guys, you've just ruined my reputation. It's still about him, it seems like. He doesn't sit them down and say, guys, this was wrong. We need to have a Bible study. You know, you, you've messed me up. Then you have idolatry in his own house, chapter 35. You have death. Rebecca's nurse dies. Rachel dies. Reuben, his oldest son, sleeps with one of his concubines. And then his father dies, all in the same chapter. The fallout continues in chapter 37 with business with Joseph. Jacob's favoritism towards him culminates in a situation where Joseph's own brothers sell him into slavery, but Jacob doesn't know that. To Jacob, he's what? dead. Fallout. I did that. I caused that. Then you got the business of Judah and Tamar, chapter 38, which I always thought was kind of a rude interruption to the story of Joseph. Can we get back to Joseph? What is this? Might have seemed disconnected from the story of Joseph, but it certainly wasn't disconnected from the story of Jacob, because this is his son. So you've got all of these awful things happening with Jacob and his family. All of this fallout. The events in chapter 38, in this crazy chapter, Judah makes a few really bad decisions that lead up to him sleeping with his own daughter-in-law, who he thought was a prostitute at the time. And it's not really the makings of a great scrapbook. If you're looking at the, 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 the life of Jacob and his family after the 20 years that he had to, to make his own family. This is, not, I mean, this is not a lifetime movie, at least not the kind that you wish your family could make. This has not gone real well. And I realize that everyone involved in these events had free will. I realize that. I realize it's, it's often difficult to tell where, where one person's responsibility ends and another person's responsibility begins, but... Would it be safe to say that Jacob is reaping some things that he has been sowing in his own family, seeds that maybe he never thought he'd even sow, that were sown when he was very young? Now, I've purposely left a few things out to make a point over the next few minutes. Let's talk about Jacob's legacy. That's kind of an overview, if you will, of his life. Just hitting some of the high points of his life. But what is his legacy going to be? 
if this is his life. As we've already seen, it could be any or all of this, right? Any and all of this has been passed down to, to the generations. It's been recorded in the Bible. We're still talking about it. But what is his legacy? Well, would it be fortune? Would fortune be part of Jacob's legacy? Were there any good things that happened in his life? Sure. Like we said, he had a, a nuclear family, one father, one mother. He had some riches and wealth in his life. He got the birthright. He got the blessing. His family was so wealthy. Remember Genesis 26, verses 12 through 16? The Philistines, an entire group of people said, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. Rich family, rich. He found true love. He was favored and blessed by God. He had lots of healthy children. He had a long life. He had a reunion with his family. He, he realized Joseph wasn't dead. He had a long, happy, prosperous retirement, 17 years in Egypt before he died. He had a very prestigious funeral and burial. He had a lot of good things going on in his life. Is that his legacy? Is it the fortune? Is it the good things that happened? Or is it the failure? Is it the bad things that happened? Is it the idolatry? Is it the favoritism? Is it the dysfunction? Is it the lying and the murder and the rape and the death and the grief and the sexual immorality? All of those things took place during Jacob's life. Is that his legacy? You and I can sit around as human beings and we can pick and choose and say, well, I think it's this and I think it's that. I would suggest that even though all of us realize that these things were part of his life. They're part of his legacy technically. And they had earthly consequences and they provide rich learning opportunities for us. But I don't think either of these categories form the basis of his true lasting legacy. What about his faith? We haven't mentioned that really yet, but let's mention that as we bring this lesson to a close tonight. Jacob had God in his life. Now, I'm going to just say, if we could be honest about Jacob's life, it was a bit of a mess, wasn't it? I would rather model my life after Noah than Jacob, wouldn't you? Dads, wouldn't you rather model your life after Noah than Jacob? I don't think any of us want to say, well, I've got my plan for life now. I've heard the lesson on Jacob. I know what I'm going to do. Nobody would say that. But for all those out there tonight who might not have had the greatest upbringing and might not have raised the family you wanted to raise, Jacob gives us hope because he had a faith in God. You remember when he left home, chapter 28, beginning in verse 11, at the beginning of his personal journey, after he had left home, we see this experience with God, this encounter with God where he sees a ladder that reaches to heaven with angels ascending and descending on it. He received promises from God at this time. He showed excitement about starting his journey with God. He said, how awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven, chapter 28, verse 17. And he worshipped God, and he said, if God will be with me, and will keep me in this way that I go, and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear, so that I come again to my Father's house in peace, and the Lord shall be my God. Jacob began this important part of his journey with faith. Now, God allowed the next 14 years to happen. There's no question about it. God allowed Jacob to reap what he had sown, but he didn't leave him. 
During those last six years, God was very much with him. Jacob knew it and acknowledged it in chapter 31, verse 42. If the God of my father, he said to his uncle Laban, if the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side. Did you hear that? He attributes all of these blessings to God. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands. Notice the faith. In chapter 32, beginning in verses 1 and 2, after these six years are over, the angels of God meet him as something like a personal escort, I guess, when he leaves Laban's house. The angels of God, and he recognized them, and he says, this is God's camp. See the faith. Not the greatest husband, not the greatest father, but do you see the faith? Then you see in chapter 32, after he sees that Esau is coming to meet him. And he has this sleepless night wondering what's going to happen when he meets up with his long-lost brother for the first time in 20 years. And he wrestles with a man, an angel, God Himself. I don't really know for sure. Until dawn, he wrestles with this person. He shows a tenacity and a stubbornness through this all-night wrestling match in pursuit of what? I will not let go until you give me a blessing. Jacob had faith. Jacob might have been thinking to himself, listen, I've messed up my family. I know it, I admit it, but I'm not letting go until you bless me. He was a man of faith. Chapter 35, verses 1 through 15, we see obedient worship. He obeys the voice of God. He removes the idolatry from his family. He worships God even in the face of great personal tragedy. So I ask you, which part of Jacob's legacy do you need to learn from tonight? What do you need to learn from tonight? We, we mentioned at the beginning that Jacob's name is mentioned over 360 times in Scripture. But he had another name. A name that God gave him. The name of Israel. Did you know that that name is mentioned over 2,000 500 times in Scripture. Far outweighing any other character in Scripture. 2,500. That name means God prevails or soldier of God. The concept of the 12 tribes of Israel, which we, we hear mentioned all the way up into Revelation chapter 21 verse 12, came to be a, a statement, a phrase that stood for the entirety of God's people. The twelve tribes of Israel came to be a representative word and, and phrase for all of us. That's an amazing legacy, isn't it? That, that my name, that my family comes to represent all of God's people. Perhaps this is the most important part of Jacob's legacy. I say to you, Jesus said this, that many will come from east and west and sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and who? Jacob. Where? In the kingdom of heaven. In the kingdom of heaven. So we don't really have to wonder if Jacob made it to heaven, do we? We really don't have to wonder. We don't really have to wonder what his ultimate legacy is because really you and I don't decide that. We can sit around and talk about his parenting and, and whether or not he was a good parent or good husband. 
We can sit around and talk about it. And you know what difference it's going to make in eternity? Well, for him, there may be some regret. But he made it to heaven. The Bible says, blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So all Israel will be saved as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob for this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Again, we are all part of Jacob's legacy if we're part of God's people. His faith is mentioned in Hebrews 11.21. When he was dying, he blessed each of his sons of Joseph and worshipped leaning on the top of his staff. So if I understand all these verses correctly, Jacob made a lot of mistakes. Jacob did a lot of things that I hope I don't do. He had to pay a lot of earthly consequences that I hope I don't have to pay. But his faith caused him to be pleasing to God. And he'll be with God and the rest of us for all eternity. If we're a faithful Christian, although there's going to be earthly consequences, there's going to be that ripple effect that will probably last until the end of time, our ultimate legacy will be Romans 8, no condemnation. Every family deals with sin. Even Christian families, don't they? Every family deals with sin. Every parent sins and deals with the consequences of it. Even Christian parents, even young people who are Christians sin and reap the consequences. Every grandparent and great-grandparent is still dealing with the fallout of the sins that they committed when they were young and as they grew up, even Christian grandparents. But the real tragedy will be those whose legacy is defined by that. For those who have no real faith, no real relationship with God, for those that God will look at on Judgment Day and say, I never knew you. I don't know who you are. That is the tragedy. That is the legacy that you and I want to avoid. For those who have genuine faith, even if it's the size of a mustard seed, for those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, He will give eternal life, glory and honor and peace. Romans chapter 2, verses 7 and 10. Tonight, I don't know uh, where you are in your journey of faith, but I hope and pray that if it has waned, that if your relationship with God has fallen to the wayside, that you will rekindle it and revive it tonight. You may have made some mistakes in your family that can't be undone. You may have to hurt from that mistake for the rest of your life, but don't hurt from that mistake for the rest of eternity. Don't allow your legacy to be defined by your mistakes. Allow it to be defined by your faith. If you have a spiritual need tonight, I know that there are, there are wonderful people here who will put their arms around you and pray for you and, and study with you if you have a need. If there's anything we can do for you tonight, if God has touched your heart in any way, won't you come while we stand and sing?